Welcome to this session. Tonight is session number 46. In case you have not been following us and you want to catch up with the other teachings, they're all on our SoundCloud channel and you can go through one by one at your own pace. We are presently in the midst of a series on prayer and that series on prayer is right smack in the middle of this mini-series called the Sermon on the Mount. And that Sermon on the Mount, of course, is found in the book of Matthew, and that's our entire text for Kingdom 101. Right? So this is just to give you a perspective in case you are just joining in and hopping onto this journey with us at this point in time. We spoke about prayer and we looked at a pattern of prayer. That's where we are in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Jesus, after teaching about how not to pray, teaches his disciples how to pray. He says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And so he gives a pattern in verses 9 to 13. And last week, we started by praying this entire prayer. So this week, I think we should do the same thing, and let's pray this, but we already have an understanding of that first line, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We said that our God is a big God. We spoke about the bigness of God, but He's also a God who is close to us. That's what we call Him, our Father. But as we are happy to be comfortable with our Father, let's not forget that He's also a holy and an awesome God. So as we come to Him this evening, petitioning through this prayer, that first line should have great meaning for us. And we will pray through the rest of this prayer and we'll get into this evening's teaching. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Last teaching, we looked at the person that we are approaching. This God that we are coming to, when we are petitioning in prayer or through prayer, this is the authority, the bigness of our God, the closest of our God, the awesomeness of our God. But the question is, what are we asking for? What is our reference point? What is this God all about? What is His purpose and His agenda? And so tonight, we'll go into the next verse in verse 10. We want to know this reference point. Your kingdom come. See, Jesus says, when you come to the Father and you're asking, the very first thing, the priority, that first point should be asking for the kingdom. Invite the kingdom to come. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this verse is a very popular verse these days. And perhaps your camp theme might have had this verse. Maybe your conference may have been entitled based on this. And in fact, I know that there will be another conference coming next year with this exact same theme, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think there's a recovery or a focus about this line, but what do we understand by the kingdom of God? What does it mean when we say your kingdom come? So let's go into some context. Let's look at some introduction first because this will always lay a good foundation for where we want to go. See, the kingdom of God is not a new concept that Jesus suddenly invented. It does not only start in the New Testament where we read about the kingdom. If you understand the Old Testament kingdom of God understanding, you go all the way back to Genesis even from Adam and Eve, God already gave to Adam the right to rule, to have dominion over creation. Of course, you know what happened in the very early chapters of Genesis. That authority, you know, or that right to rule was sort of uh, handed over to the evil one. And now this guy becomes the God of this world. Now we fast forward God now wants to rule through and prepare a people that He can rule through, and He starts with Abraham. 
He calls Abraham, he says, look, you know, if you want to believe me, if you will believe me, I'll make your name great and I'll give you a great nation and through you, all the families of this earth will be blessed. He makes the same promise to Isaac. He goes right through to Jacob, out of which we, his name is changed to Israel, where we then have the people of God called the Israelites. They get into Egypt, become slaves for 400 plus years. They were not really a kingdom yet. They were just a bunch of slaves. But when God saves them with a mighty outstretched hand, He commissions them and He uses His title on them. You will be to me a kingdom of priests. Can you see this? So God from the beginning has always wanted to rule on earth through representatives. In and through this kingdom of priests, of course, we know Moses as the first leader. Then after that, hands over to Joshua. Then it comes to a time of judges. Notice, not a single mention about king, right? Still no king. All the nations around them all have kings. But for Israel, God was their king. They were only representatives. They were prophets. They were judges. They administered the kingdom of God. But my point to show you that the kingdom of God was already present in the Old Testament. Finally, the people couldn't take it anymore. They told Samuel, can you please give us a king? We want to be like the rest of the nations around us. We want a king. And so God says, okay, never mind. They didn't reject you. They actually rejected me as king. So we have Saul. And after Saul comes David. And then David hands over to Solomon. That's like the golden era of the Davidic Solomon kingdom of God. But after that, everything fell apart, right? We had the divided kingdom, 10 tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. Now, they took things into their own hands. The kings were not all good kings. And before you knew it, God says, I've got to take you out. 70 years in exile, they get back to the land. No more kingdom. Only a small province some local government, but they were under foreign rule. And you see, in the Old Testament, that's where we leave them. There's an expectation of a coming king. There's an expectation of a restoration of a kingdom. And that's why even this line, your kingdom come, it's not a new line. It's not for Christians. It's not for someone who believes in Jesus Christ. It's for anyone who desires that restoration of God's kingdom all over again. Can you see this? So you don't start halfway in the New Testament and think, oh, this is a new thing. This is a Lord's Prayer prayed by the church. In fact, if you know the Jewish context and the Jewish understanding, because of that background, because of that history, there's an ancient prayer called the Elenu. And this Elenu is just that Hebrew word that means that it's taken from that very first phrase that says, it is incumbent upon us to pray this. It is our duty to, for us to pray this. And in fact, I understand that this prayer is part of their daily liturgy and is the very last prayer. It's like a closing prayer uh, for the Jews. And it's a, it's a long prayer. I won't read this entire thing to you, but essentially it, it contains the same petition. Oh God, don't just restore this kingdom. Oh God, don't just rule over us. We desire because you are a great God, you're a king, you're of all kings, you're God of all gods, rule over all the earth. Rule over the entire world. We desire that all the peoples come to know you in that sense. And so the nuance of thy kingdom come. Oh God, bring your kingdom on earth as well as in heaven. It's, it's a cry of the Jewish people because they realized they had it at one point. They lost it and they are praying this prayer. Your kingdom come. Even through this prayer, they're acknowledging that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. He reigns from the highest of heavens. And yet, although He reigns, it's not an entire reign yet. It's not full yet. They're still praying, God, Your kingdom come. And finally, finally, because of the prophet's declaration, they will know and they, they are expecting that when Messiah appears, when Messiah appears, He will then bring God's kingdom on earth. Not a new prayer. Not a new concept. Jesus didn't come and suddenly radicalize things overnight and talk about this, uh, a new thing. No, he was continuing in the tradition of the rabbis. Then comes Jesus. And we know his name as Yeshua, and he's known as the Messiah. So Yeshua HaMashiach. Now, John the Baptist, 
The first thing he does when he comes out and in the wilderness, recorded words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After 400 years of silence, after civil unrest, after foreign oppression and foreign rule, suddenly this guy comes out and says, the kingdom of God is really near. The kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is so close, you can smell it. It's, got, it's, it's so near to your face. Now, change the way you live, repent, change your mindset, because this kingdom that you're asking for is breaking through. This kingdom that you're expecting for all these years, it's now coming onto the scene. Now, John gets in prison, and Jesus, at the right time in Matthew chapter 4, he steps out, and the very first line he says what? Exactly the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see? He just continues. He just segues so smoothly into it. But the difference is that he is saying, look, I am the one. I'm the one. He's the prophesied one. I'm the person that is bringing in the kingdom. And imagine the people. That's why people were flocking to him. People were, were, were excited. They were, it was of great expectation. Then, of course, you know what happened. A couple of years later, this, this guy gets crucified. Right? The Messiah gets crucified. He's buried, but he's raised on the third day. God vindicates him, raises him up. He spends 40 days with his disciples teaching about what? The kingdom of God. Same thing. It's like class resume, okay? You know, temporary pause for a while. We take a break. <laughs> Once I come out of the grave, <laughs> no problem. We resume class. 40 days. He teaches about the kingdom. Can you imagine if you were seated there with the teacher of teachers and the king of kings telling you about his kingdom? Oh man, you will be excited. You, you, you won't look like that. You don't need to be awakened, aligned, assigned, right? You will be like, oh, Jesus, come on, give me the kingdom now. That's why in Acts chapter 1, they ask, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? I mean, you've been saying all this, we've been following you for three years, now you're going to, you've already been raised up, we know you're the Messiah, we've witnessed all these things, so now, is it now, is it now, is it now? And Jesus looks at them and says, Choto, wait, hang loose, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Don't worry about that. He didn't dispute them. He just says, don't worry about that. In the meantime, worry about your assignment. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. You'll be empowered. Go be my witnesses. That should ring in some of our hearts. You understand? Sometimes we are so hung up with the, oh, the times and the seasons, and should it be this day, or should it be that day, or if this is happening? I mean, those are significant. Praise the Lord. Be aware to those things. But my question is, if you know all those things and you're not an assignment, I don't think it accounts for very much. And Jesus was saying exactly the same thing to the disciples. Hang in there, guys, you know. Don't keep looking at your calendars. Holy Spirit comes upon you. Get out there. Be witnesses. And I think today we find ourselves asking like a similar question. I mean, the Bible has been given to us. Jesus has said all these things. It's all been recorded. All the scriptures are there. And as Christians, I think maybe you're like me. I, I, let me not presume that you have those same questions. I know I, I struggle with some of these questions. So is the kingdom here already? Or is it half here? Or not here yet? Or is it still to come? And if it's here already, then why do we pray your kingdom come? But if it's not here, then how come the kingdom is near? And You know, it's like, so is it here or is it not here? And, and I know, uh, this week when I was preparing this whole thing, I was smiling on one part and on the other part I was a little bit upset because there's a group of people teaching to say that this Lord's Prayer, you, it's, it's irrelevant to us today as Christians because you cannot pray your kingdom come. The kingdom already come. So do you pray or don't you pray? Do you struggle with these questions? What is this kingdom? Where is it? And what is it all about? And I want to unpack this. Okay, so At some points, it may get a little bit technical, but please stay with me. I find for myself, at least growing up, we don't hear very much about the kingdom of God. We hear a lot about church, how to be a good church person, how to be a good Christian in that sense. But what is this kingdom of God all about? See, with little or no Jewish understanding or Old Testament background, sometimes it's difficult for us to, to grasp this concept about the kingdom of God. So many of us tend to equate the kingdom of God as heaven, right? 
because we have that word kingdom of heaven also to, to make things even more confusing. And we've always been taught that if you are saved, you're in the kingdom and you will go to heaven. So we equate kingdom of God equals heaven. But is that really the case? Some believe that the kingdom of God is the church and the church is the kingdom of God. And they're very surprised when I should make a statement to say there are two different concepts, two related, but they are different. And Christians get very confused. And even I had a leader ask me, are you sure they are different? I thought, I've, I was always taught that way, that the church is the kingdom and the kingdom is the church. And I said, brother, let me just say this to you. Just ask you this question. A little bit extreme, but let me ask you. If today you and I was not present, there's no such thing as the church, is there still the kingdom of God? Obviously, yes. So how can the church be the kingdom of God? It cannot be, right? right? So you've got to think about some of these things. We've taken a lot of these things for granted. Also, because we have largely grown up in a democratic type of a society, we have no understanding of monarchy or, or kingdom implications. We vote, like what the United States is doing. You know, either one or so jialat. <laughs> so what is the kingdom of God? Let's look at what a kingdom is and what a kingdom needs first. A kingdom will always have three elements that must be present. First, there is a ruler in this kingdom. Without a king, there's no real kingdom. Okay, That's why in Kingdom 101, I always say, let's know the king. If you don't know the king, it's useless about the kingdom. So the ruler is a person whose position puts him above all others. He's the number one. He makes all the decisions. He has the authority and he has that power to reign. The second thing about a kingdom is that this ruler needs to rule over a realm or a domain. So the word kingdom is really a combination of two words, the king's domain. If you make me king and tell me I can't rule over anything, then it's pointless to call me a king. It's useless. The realm is a, a defined area geographically, or it can be a defined people group over whom his authority is legitimate. Okay, so point number one, there has to be a ruler. Number two, there has to be a realm. Now, point number three is also important. He needs to be given that right to reign. If you are a ruler and you're not allowed to reign, then honestly, you are ruling your own little space with no impact on anyone else. The reign is the active exercise of authority that results in the making of decisions and the decreeing of making legal treaties and heroic triumphs, right? He has to reign in that realm, this ruler. I think Pastor Peter Sukahiro is the one who gave the very good example of uh, the British monarchy at this point in time, right? Who's the queen? She is the ruling monarch, right? That's, that's her, her place, that's her position. But who makes the decisions for the country? It's actually the prime minister. Okay, and it's a democracy in that sense. They get to vote these parties in. It's not really the queen, right? So the queen is the ruling monarch over the United Kingdom and other places, but she doesn't really have a direct say in the running of the kingdom. Are you following so for a kingdom to be effective and operational, these three points are very, very important and they must exist. You must have a ruler, the person must have a realm, and he must have the authority, the active exercise of that authority to rule and to reign in that place. Now here comes Jesus and he steps in and he talks about the kingdom of God. And he actually declares himself, he says, look, I am that Messiah. Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 is devoted to, to positioning Jesus as the prophetic fulfillment of these messianic prophecies and requirements. Go back to read chapter 1 and chapter 2. Listen to the teachings all over again. Matthew takes great pain from chapter 1 onwards where he talks about the genealogy where none of us read most of the time. And we see that he's positioned that as a requirement, this Messiah, he has to be a son of Abraham. Not only that, he also has to be a son of David. And not only that, he also has to be a son of God if he's going to be ruling the kingdom of God. And so he fulfills all these requirements, all the prophecies dovetail into this one person called Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. 
So he comes in as a ruler, and he's saying, look, I am reigning over this realm. I'm the ruler of this realm, and I am inviting you now. Here comes the good news of the kingdom. I'm inviting you now to allow me to be your king. I'm going to take over now. I'm going to take over right now, right? So if I'm the ruler, and I see a realm that is there, I need to be given that right to rule uh, and, and to reign, without which I'm just a figurehead. I'm just ceremonial, which is not much use. So he invites everyone to come under his rule and reign. But the interesting thing is the differences that you see in the way that he constitutes his kingdom and how he invites people and all to participate. He invites all not by coercion. He doesn't say, look, you know, I'm taking you and I'm yanking you out from a position and say, I've conquered you, now you belong to me. He, he doesn't say that. That's not by coercion. He doesn't go to someone and say, oh, you look good. Oh, you look clever. You're smart. Okay, you, you, you'll serve well in my kingdom. I will take you. It's not by merit. It's not by coercion. It's not by merit. But his invitation into his kingdom is by faith and according to grace. Is that, look, I'm going to share, share with you my campaign slogan. I'm going to tell you how good my kingdom is and what it means to come under my rule and reign. Now, do you believe it? The moment you believe it, man, you give me right to rule. I say, come in, no problem. I'll take you out. I'll save you from whatever is holding you back. And I'll bring you in, not because you deserve it, but because you believe what I say. That I'll be a good king, I'll be a great king, and I'm going to be a cool king. See how different this, this kingdom is? It's not about conquering you, but it is about inviting you and bringing you in by grace. This kingdom is also not about a liberation from physical enemies, although it ha did happen in, the, in, in times past. But this kingdom or this king is there to liberate you from personal sin and death. Oh, isn't that interesting? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Joseph was told by the angel, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their enemies. No, from their sin. And the wages of sin is death. And so if I don't save you from sin, you're going to die anyway. It doesn't matter who you are under authority. And so it's a different kind of a kingdom. He saves you from a different enemy. He doesn't save you from someone who's outside. He saves you from yourself. This kingdom is not ruled from without, not from the outside. He doesn't rule by force and say, this is my law. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. I'm... No, never about that. This kingdom is ruled from the inside with mercy by the Spirit of the law. Isn't that interesting again, right? Now, the, all kings and all kingdoms will have laws, as we have already learned that. But this kingdom is different, it's special, because he doesn't rule it by force according to the letter of the law. He rules it by mercy according to the spirit of the law. Now, does it mean that there's no judgment at all? No. This kingdom is, again, special in a different way. That this kingdom is ruled not with immediate judgment, but this kingdom is ruled with postponed judgment judgment. Just catch that. John the Baptist entering the scene, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Now if you don't buck up, if you don't still do not produce fruit of righteousness, we are going to chop you and you're going to cast into the fire. It's like almost if you don't buck up now, judgment is going to come. Now he got a right picture except that it was premature. Because Jesus, in sharing another parable in, in Luke chapter 13, verse 6 to 9, remember, he, he talked about a parable about a barren fig tree. And he asked him, Master, should we, should we cut this tree down? It's not bearing fruit. And he says, look, should we cut? And the person says, no, wait, hang on. Can, can, I, can you give me one more year, two more years? And let's see whether there's, and if there's no fruit after that, you can cut it down. And the vine dresser says, yeah, okay, fine, no problem. You see, it's by grace. And so, it's, this kingdom is not without judgment, but it, because it's ruled by grace and mercy, there is warning after warning, chance after chance, to bear fruit, to be the kingdom people that we are supposed to be. This is the king. That's why the good news is something that Jesus then declares. to say, look, this is my kingdom. But you know what's the greatest news about this kingdom? 
Jesus' campaign slogan would have been shalom. It would have been peace. It would have been a full restoration. It would have been a full well-being of your life because if you allow me to run your life, if you allow me to run your country, run your kingdom, your own little agendas, you run your little things, I guarantee you, that's what the king says. This is the good news. Believe me. He didn't say vote for me. He said believe me. You don't get to vote, by the way. Believe me. I guarantee you, I will give you life and life more abundantly. Things are going to be cool because it's going to be with me. Right? And this is the good news of the kingdom. What is interesting is that this thinking is totally consistent with a rabbinic understanding of receiving and entering the kingdom of God. It's like, huh? Really? Yeah. See, the rabbis would always teach the prayer through the Shema. You know the Shema, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our God, He is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the rabbis would teach it in this way to say, the one who prays this prayer, the Shema, with sincerity of heart, that means really desiring to love God with all this, that means giving, him, giving God His everything, allowing God to have every aspect of His, of his life. This person who prays this way receives upon himself the kingdom of heaven. See this? If you pray this way and you desire God's rule and reign over your life, then you would have received upon yourself the kingdom of heaven. And so technically, we can equate then that to receive the kingdom of heaven is thus to receive and to accept and to acknowledge the rule and the reign of God. And that's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, kingdom of God, you don't look here, look here, find here, look there, everywhere. The kingdom of God is within you. It's not ruled from the outside in. It's ruled from the inside out. So if you say, God, rule over me, then you would have received the kingdom of heaven. You see that? But if you're fighting the rule and the reign of God, then you're rejecting the kingdom of heaven. And in that, you do not enter into the things of God. But if you will have the rule and the reign of God in every aspect of your life, then this really results in a life that would transcend all things. Not the way the world describes it, because you must remember that His kingdom is not just on earth, but it's also for eternity. So you must have that perspective. See, the kingdom of God through the teachings of Jesus, the ways that He invites us to participate in all these things, that was his first coming. He came and he declared the kingdom. But the story doesn't end there because we know that there is a second coming. A second coming where he will receive for himself this entirety of the kingdom. And today you and I as the church, people who believe, a called out community, a kingdom community, we live in this period called the in-between. How nice if it's either this or that, but the in-between is it's sometimes very difficult because we are neither here nor there. But as the in-between people, Jesus the King expects the church to be representatives and ambassadors of the kingdom. Now, this is where it gets personal now. We've been talking about the kingdom. We're talking about the concept of the kingdom. Now, what does it really mean for us? We are in between the first and the second coming. What's our role? we are to be representatives and ambassadors of the coming. Now, I think we all agree in this room, together with the rest of believers around the world, Jesus will return. Yes or no? Definitely amen. No doubt about that. But that's not the question that we are fighting over. The thing that is unclear, not everyone agrees with, is when that would happen. When would Jesus come? And when would the saints be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? There's a lot of debate and a lot of question. And our own personal views of these questions or these issues about the kingdom will affect how we live for and how we represent the kingdom. And so very quickly, God help me. This is the technical part, so bear with me. If anyone falls asleep, you have my permission to pinch them. There are different views of the millennial kingdom. 
So we'll go into a little bit of a teaching of the amillennial thinking, post-millennial thinking, pre-millennial thinking, okay? And some are like upper millennial. <laughs> Don't know what millennial is. Have you heard about the millennial kingdom? Yes or no? Okay, most of you have, right? It's like 1,000 years. That's why it's called the millennium. Let's go into that so that I think with pictures it might be easier or with some graphics. Um, I apologize to those listening in that you miss the graphics and that's why you should be here. There's a view called amillennialism. Millennial refers to the millennium kingdom. A, when you put an A before, it means no, don't have. Okay, the opposite is a negative. This position is well known by the AD 300s and it became widespread through the AD 400s, the early church years over there. Names associated with this position will be like St. Augustine, even Martin Luther, John Calvin, J.I. Packer, modern theologians. And they don't believe in a literal millennium. That means not 1,000 years. They subscribe to what they call a symbolic and a figurative millennium. Because they believe all the other numbers are also symbolic, like the 42 months, the 144,000 believers, and so on. All these are symbolic. You don't count them uh, exactly and literally. And to them, because it's symbolic, the millennium started when Jesus ascended. So when the church was birthed, that's it. The millennium started at that point in time. Okay? Now, understandably, they were living within the first millennium of church age. So did it affect them? Possibly. But for them, they understand that the kingdom is already here. The millennium is here. They say, oh, but hang on. Then where is Jesus ruling? I mean, shouldn't he be ruling over this millennium? Does it, does it not say that? Well, their position is that Jesus is already ruling. He is ruling with his saints and reigning with them in heaven. And he decrees from heaven. Okay, And that's his rule and reign. The millennium kingdom is symbolic. And at the same time, tribulation continues. That means both the millennium kingdom and the tribulation coexist concurrently. There will be times where there will be problems and the church is still in. It will go through the time of tribulation. There's no one period of tribulation and then the millennium. Okay, so this is called the A-mill uh, position. Now, Jesus can return anytime, but there's no stated time frame. Anytime. It's not critical. Okay? And the most common illustration used to describe this is the Second World War. After, after so many years, then we have the Second World War, right? 1940s. Where finally, a decision was made to, to land on Normandy Beach. And that day was called D-Day. Right? The Allied forces decided we'll do that. The leaders all knew that they are going to lose many, many people, many lives, landing on that beach. But they knew that that would be the game changer, so to speak. That would clinch everything. And so they sent in the forces. True enough, many, many young lives died. But they secured that beach hit. And in doing so, they knew that they had already the final say. It was only a matter of time before Nazi Germany would topple. And so D-Day became very clear, but when would victory or V-Day be in Europe? Nobody knew. There would still be battles along the way that they had to fight. Lives would still be uh, sacrificed, but they knew it would only be a matter of time before Hitler would fall. And so they likened the church age to be something like that. That Jesus, at his death, his resurrection, his ascension, victory was already secured. Amen? Already secured. So we live victoriously. But do we have problems? We still have problems. So we still have battles. And we go through all those things. But we know one day that victory will be realized true and true with the coming of Jesus once more. And so this is the amillennial position. They believe the kingdom is here. And yet, not yet. The kingdom is here now with us, and not yet. It's still to come. So you have a sampling of the kingdom, but not in its fullness yet. That's Emil. There's a second position called post-mill. Now, post means after. 
Now, all these terms refer to the coming of Jesus, the coming of the King. So Paul's mill just means Jesus returns after the millennium. Now, this was popular in also the 300s and 400s, and here's some similarities with Emil. Some of the theologians attributed to the church fathers like Oregon, Daniel Whitby, and even in the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, where there was a revival that broke out. It also spurred and sparked off a missionary movement. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. Now, this group believes firmly in the power of the gospel to transform lives, communities, societies, and cultures. Okay, so to them, this is the power of the kingdom. It's the good news. And so because of that, they believe that if we were to keep preaching the gospel, in time, all society will be infiltrated or culturized by, by the gospel. And it has the power to transform lives, families, societies. Now, we are still saying that today, aren't we? Exactly the same thing. And to them, the world will get better and better and better and better and better. And ultimately, because there will be worldwide acceptance of the gospel, it ushers into the millennial kingdom. So people of this kind of a theology would think that we have to get everything ready, everything okay, and then Jesus will come. If we don't get everything well through the gospel, Jesus won't come. That's their thinking. Then we ask the question, if things get better, then, then where is the great tribulation? Is there a tribulation somewhere? And so the people who hold to this position, they tend to interpret that the tribulation might have already happened. All the apocalyptic texts, all the prophecies of bad things happening, they have already taken place in the very first century. Because remember, in 70 AD, everything was ransacked. Up until 300 AD, Christians were persecuted. They were chased all over the place. They actually went through a lot of tribulation down here. So to them, all Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled in the past. And so there's a position called the preterism. So they don't read revelations as something as future. They read revelation as something as past. And there are people in our midst who also, you know, believe in that. Understand? And so because it's past, and now we're going to move, and your kingdom is already here, and now it's, everything is here. It, the power has been given to us. It's up to us now to get this world ready because the bride has to be a, a, a glorious bride, pure and spotless and all, and then Jesus will come. Can you see a different teaching? Okay, but the focus is then on the gospel. Now today, there's another movement that sort of spins off from this. It's actually called Dominion Theology. Dominion theology. So sometimes when we go out and say, oh, I believe in the kingdom, they get very worried about you because you, you sound like as if you are a dominionist. Seven mountains, dominionist. You understand? The, the whole theology that if I can get the gospel into every sphere and every sector of society, things are going to be good. Everything's going to be beautiful. And once we get everything packed down nicely, Jesus will come. This is the theology. Huh? That's why you see, like we have all your different gates. This is influenced by, by this kind of a teaching. Okay, now as I'm going through these things, I want to ask you to evaluate where do you stand on this? What's your own view? The next view is called dispensational premillennialism. Trust the theologians to come up with very big words that make us trip and fall. Now the word dispensation simply means stewardship or administration. They believe that in certain periods or in different timelines and with different groups of people, God deals with them differently. God dispenses certain things according to salvation history. One point to note is that this teaching only became popular only very recently in the 1800s, not in the 300s or the 400s. And it's largely attributed to the works of this guy called John Nelson Darby, he looked at the Bible and he studied and he said, well, I think there are six dispensations. This other guy called Cyrus I. Schofield. Even there's a Schofield chain Bible. And there are actually seven dispensations according, according to them. Now, if you're still very confused about what this term means, it's increased in popularity so much that in recent times, have you heard of this guy called Tim LaHaye, who wrote the series Left Behind? Okay, now he is one of those influenced by this teaching. More significantly for our purposes, 
This position believes that God deals with Israel and the church differently through different dispensations. For example, the role of the church, they believe, is very critical to the salvation of Israel because we must provoke God's people to jealousy, right? And the role of modern Israel. Now today, there's so many teaching about the rebirth of Israel, modern Israel. It's very critical thus to the salvation of the rest of the world, right? Because if they, were, if they are blessing to us when they were uh, dead and so on, how much more when they come alive, right? And so they hold on to these kind of teachings or these verses. At the same point, they believe that the church must be removed so that God can, can deal finally with the people of Israel. The church must be taken out of the way. And that's why there's this thing called the rapture. And so depending on whether you are a pre-trip or a mid-trip, then you'll believe whether the church is going to be raptured out or taken out before the tribulation, seven years, or in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years, and then God deals with Israel. And Antichrist will come there and then make a covenant and then snoop uh, Israel and things like that. Now you, you know the story. And finally, when all these things end, when no hope anymore, Jesus comes and saves the world. And he establishes the millennial kingdom. The fourth one is called historical premill. Historical because this position is the earliest known view of the end times. And the church fathers like Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, these are all the church fathers who lived, they were disciples of the apostles. More contemporary names would be people like Charles Spurgeon, George Eldon Ladd, Albert Moller, Wayne Grudem. It's about the same to dispensational premill, except for the rapture and the return position. In the previous position, they believe that the rapture happens separately from the return. The rapture must happen first, and then the return comes. But in this position, both the rapture and the return are one event, where the saints are caught up with the Lord and we return to rule with the Lord. Okay, so that's the position. The restoration of modern Israel is not a main point. Salvation of the Jews is still important, but it is not contingent upon a physical Israel. How about the Great Tribulation? Is there a tribulation before the millennium? Well, if you look at it as a literal 42 months, then the tribulation will be a short period. But if it's a symbolic 42 months, then the tribulation started at 70 AD when the temple was ransacked and persecution broke out against the Jews and then after that against the Christians. And all through, we've been facing tribulation of different intensities across history. Four views. What is your view of the coming kingdom of God? Which one do you hold to? How does it affect you when you pray for God's kingdom? Are you like me when you look at all the different emphasis of these different positions, you subscribe to a little bit of all of them, right? Or not? You know? Like for example, you look at it, the present reality of a millennial kingdom in Emil, you believe in that? Yeah, of course. The victory of Jesus, yeah, I also believe in that one. Paul's mill, the power of the gospel to transform, yeah, I believe to that. I look to a better time of spiritual peace, yes, I also believe that. Dispensational pre-mill, there's a timeline of urgency because you never know when we'll be, you know, raptured away and, and so on. So there's an urgency. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true also. How about historical pre-mill where tribulation is there and God will persevere for the saints uh, right through in spite of all the challenges. Yeah, I also believe in that, right? So are we chapalang millennialism? Uh, are we multi mill, you know? What mill are we? You know? <laughs> Does it even really matter, right? I told you, it's a little bit technical, but I think it is important for you to know at least a little bit of this. Because where you get your teaching will affect your position. The person who teaches their position will impact you, will influence you. And if you don't know their position, you're taking here, you're taking there, you're taking here just because they're they are either good-looking or they're charismatic or you know, they don't put you to sleep or they preach, and or it just touches your heart, then you've got... You, you really have a mix of the millennial position. Which church you go to, they have a different position. Even within your church, 
there are different positions. Which seminar you go to, right? Conference. And the, the, the worst thing is that, worst thing, actually it's the best thing also, they're all scriptural. They've got a verse to back everything up. Can you beat that? So how do you know? What would you do? Your view will also affect how you live for the kingdom. You see, this is part of this whole subject we call eschatology, the end times. Eschatology matters. Eschatology is very important. If you say, I yeah, forget it, lah. don't care, lah. I don't care how the end times are, then I tell you what, you don't really care how you live your Christian life either. It makes no impact to you, right? Because you think, no problem, ma. at the end, die, also go to heaven. Ma. That's your view of kingdom, you see that? Your kingdom view is still, die, go to heaven. And I hope I've convinced you, at least in part, as we look at kingdom, the kingdom of God ruling and reigning is not die, go to heaven. The kingdom of God ruling and reigning is really Him having every say in how you live your life right now. So would you agree with me? Your eschatological view matters. Let me give you how I try to wrestle with this. For me, I'm still wrestling with some of these positions. Sometimes I'm a little bit more this. Other times I, I say, okay, this one makes sense here, you know. And we are products of our culture, of our events. You know, if tomorrow there's this big catastrophe that happens, we're like, oh, okay, maybe this is the tribulation or maybe that is the one. Something happens to Israel tomorrow, oh, maybe that's the one. So we, we tend to swing a little bit here and there. And how I try to manage this is that I look at what this best position is for me. You know, I, I pick the best of all. And I said, look, at the end of the day, when I meet with the Lord, He's not going to quiz me on how I define this millennial period. Right? He's not going to quiz me on, on whether I, I got it, I spelled correctly millennialism or not. Yeah? He's not going to quiz me on all these kind of things. He's going to ask, did you do what I asked you to do? Say amen? Right? So at the end of the day, it's obedience and it's faithfulness. I've said it so many times. If really, truly, we're going to be raptured, you can't, you, you, you can't determine when. The point is, you know, when you do get raptured, are you counted as faithful? Amen? And if you don't even believe in that rapture, in that premium understanding, dispensational, then when the Lord comes and He returns and, and He sets up the millennial kingdom, are you counted as obedient and faithful to be ruling and reigning with Him? Amen? This is important, you see. And this is the crux also as I talk about the kingdom and I share about the kingdom, I bring in our keeper's awakening because this is a message that the Lord is, is recovering to the people. It's like, you know, come on, understand the kingdom. Understand the times. We can all agree. We may not agree with all this position, but I know we all agree. We are seeing things happening, right? That one we can't avoid. How it finally ends up, we have no idea. We have no clue. Are you on your assignment? You see, this is my point. Is God ruling and reigning in the realm of your life? Having plowed through all these things, <laughs> going through this thing about the kingdom of God, understanding this line when we say, your kingdom come, what does it really mean for us? I think we are now ready to explore this next phrase. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as a closing point, let's unpack this a little bit. See, we are kingdom representatives. We are kingdom ambassadors. Obviously, we must represent the kingdom. We must do something. We are here to execute God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That would be the easiest definition, the most straightforward, without tripping over any theological things. And this kingdom is not a bad kingdom. We know it's a good kingdom. And in, in our terms, we call it a righteous kingdom. Now, it's an everlasting kingdom. How would you like to have a kingdom that is not righteous, that lasts forever? Now, that's bad news. That's why the Messiah was prophesied that when He comes, He will rule with righteousness. It's going to be good. Because everything by this kingdom and by this king will be right. And so his will will be a righteous will that extends. So when we pray, the first thing you realize, when you pray, your kingdom come, are you ready to say, my kingdom go? When you pray, Lord, Lord, your kingdom come. Wait, huh? I still got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. Uh, please don't touch this area. Huh? This one I like. One no, no, it's Lord, your kingdom come. What I'm saying is, my kingdom go. That's it. There's no coexistence of two kingdoms. 
When God rules, it's no longer my will, but yours be done. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, what we are saying is that, Lord, I'm ready to serve you no matter what. And it starts with the submission of my life and my agenda. I lay it down. That's it. That's why we sing, I surrender. And I acknowledge that because you have saved me, you have redeemed me, you have bought me, I really understand this. I'm no longer my own. I live for you only, O King. That's it. See, we don't understand kingdom. We understand democracy. That's our problem. We think we get to choose. In a kingdom, what the king says goes. So are you wanting to pray your kingdom come? Are you ready to say, my kingdom go? Second thing is to know his will. What is this will? Sometimes we think, oh, will, is it full-time ministry? Is it to marry this person? Is it to do this job? God says, look, no, this is my will for you guys, all right? Your sanctification. I'm a holy God. I'm an awesome God. If you want to come into my holy kingdom, guess what? You need to be holy. Oh, we can't be holy. No problem. That's why I gave you Jesus first. That in Christ, you have been perfected even those who are still being sanctified. So you're clothed in His righteousness. You borrow His holiness, but you're expected to grow in righteousness and expel as to grow in holiness. God requires transformation. That's His will for us. That we are not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of its mind. That we can prove what is the acceptable, perfect, and good will of God. In our terms, we use this word called alignment. So if you come to me, what's God's will for me? I look at you, alignment. Simple, right? Later on, we can do an altar call. I can lay hands on one of you. All of you, I have got word of knowledge for you. Alignment, 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 alignment. Myself, don't waste time. I broadcast alignment. Hallelujah. But if you want to start with alignment, it starts with submission, right or not? Lord, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. Because here's the truth, friends. Those who respond to His rule and reign will be aligned to God's agenda and assignment. Is that amen, friends? Is that yes? See, sometimes we think it's the other way around. God, God, uh, help me to align first, then I will accept your rule and reign. No, no, it's the other way. God, you know best. It's the rule and reign. Now, how do I align to you? You see that the difference here? So friends, if you want to be executing God's will, the righteousness of God's rule and reign upon this earth, it starts with you. You pray, your kingdom come, Lord. My kingdom has to go. Because I don't even understand what righteousness is. All I know is self-righteousness. And then you begin to adjust because you are being transformed through the renewing of the mind to really understand His good, acceptable, and perfect will. And as you respond to God's rule and reign, you'll be aligned to His agenda and assignments. As you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, that which exceeds all that of the Pharisees. These are the good works that would impact lives around you, transform societies, bring glory to the Father. Friends, you're looking for kingdom assignments. Can I just tell you very simply, they are righteous and good works prepared for you. Don't look so far. Don't think you have to cross the seven seas. They are good and righteous works prepared for you. The righteous works of the saints. You realize that when Jesus has his the marriage feast together with the bride, who is the church. The bride is clothed in white. What is this white? It's not holiness, you know. It's the righteous works of the saints. When he comes with his mighty ones, uh, mighty army once more, these are saints dressed in white on horses together with him. What are the white garments all about? It's righteous works of the saints. We are clothed by our assignments. It's almost like, can you imagine your, an army colonel? Very impressive, right? When they wear their number one ceremonial uniform, you see all the decorations on his chest. You are being decorated. Those are your assignments you carry with you. Your righteous works. If you want to be on God's will, will you be aligned to what God is all about? But if you want to be aligned with Him, will you submit to His rule and reign? Then we talk about realm because on earth as it is in heaven speaks about this realm of God's rule and reign. There's no problem in heaven. Not where God is. 
He's ruling, he's reigning. Earth at the moment, he's letting his enemies play a little bit of punk. But he knows that time is short. Satan knows his time is short. Do the saints know that the time is short? But he says, you're praying. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, let's start with earth. Who's the first one on earth who wants to have the realm of my rule? You, me. Have you received the good news of the kingdom? It's not believe in Jesus, die and go to heaven. The good news of the kingdom is, Lord, this realm, this one, this life first, this one, this one, this Akipas down here, rule and reign. Because when you rule and reign, man, it's going to be alright with this gun. I don't want to be a church guy. I don't want to be someone who's religious in that sense. I want to be a kingdom person. Rule and reign by God. Life abundant, eternal, spiritual. I don't look at material stuff. I don't look at the temporal stuff. Doesn't mean I'm problem free, but in the face of challenges and trials, God is with me ruling and reigning. What problems do I have in that sense? I'm not ruled by God's letter of the law. It is by the righteousness, the joy and the peace in the Holy Spirit. It is an abundant life. It's a full life. So start with a personal realm. Maybe tonight when you go back, tomorrow when you pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Would that be a good place to start? Start personally. Then you extend, Lord, Lord your kingdom come, your will be done in my family as it is in heaven. In my marriage as it is in heaven. In my church as it is in heaven. In my workplace as it is in heaven. In my country as it is in heaven. And you begin to extend that realm of God. And you begin to ask for your areas of operation. Lord, as you rule in me, as I align to your will, O King, where are you sending me to? To be an ambassador of your kingdom. And you start to move out to represent the king and his kingdom. Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to impact? See, friends, at the end of the day, when you look at this final slide here, see, it's all about being ambassadors of the kingdom right here. It's not about waiting to go to heaven, although that is our expectation. It's not about, oh God, you know, rapture me now. This life is just too hard for me. It's not about that. I think God is merciful to us because if you rapture many of us now, we're not ready to give any account. So He sends a clown called Akipas to awaken us, to say, look, are you awakened? Are you aligned? Then get assigned. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, I invite you to invite the kingdom. But understand the entire paradox. As you invite the kingdom... God invites us to participate. How gracious our Heavenly Father. How gracious our King of Kings. As you're inviting the kingdom in, God is inviting you into the kingdom. Isn't it wonderful? And we get to partner with Him. We get to work with Him. We get to experience so many other things. And I've said so many times that, you know, as we are aligned, God shows us our assignment. But as we would be faithful and obedient to move on an assignment, God graciously shows up our misalignment so that we can check once more that we can continue to be on assignment. This is what it is. And so the invitation is for all of us. And so with that, let's close and let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for this reminder about the kingdom of God, Lord. That Lord, for too long perhaps, you know, we've basked in this understanding of uh, being taken to a, a heavenly abode and although exciting and comfortable, Lord, perhaps it may not have been the entirety of the picture of the kingdom and we ask, Lord, open our eyes tonight, Lord. And Lord, if we have been awakened to a point, then I, Father, I pray, align us, Lord, so that we, we, we don't swing back to that path of least resistance or what we are comfortable with but also help us to be aware of the various positions so that when we listen, Lord, give us wisdom that we can process, that we can be like the Bereans to check out the Scriptures to see if it was so. But Lord, forbid us, Lord, that we become armchair theologians, O oh Lord, or, or Facebook critiques, O oh Lord. Lord, forgive us for doing that because, Lord, whatever you teach us and how you stir us, Lord, is for us to be on assignment as kingdom ambassadors. And so I pray for every person, Lord, today here and also listening in. 
Lord, give grace. Help us, Lord, even as we submit once more to your rule and to your reign. And as we align with you, Lord, will you assign us by your grace. And we thank you, Lord. Once again, we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Begin with me, Lord. Begin with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.